I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Hester Musson about her historical novel, The Beholders. Hester grew up in Leicestershire. She studied English literature at Bristol University and also has a master's in drama. While pursuing an acting career, her day jobs included working in TV as a freelance autocue operator. She currently writes for Art Fund, the national charity for art, and its magazine, Art Quarterly, and blogs for nature conservation. In this episode, we discuss the challenges of writing in a diary form, how to transform one-dimensional characters, and the crushing story of how Hester thought she was going to be published with a different novel, but it sold only to Italian publishers, and was then dropped completely. Awful, I'm sure many people will empathise with Hester's story. But before we hear that, here's Hester with an excerpt from The Beholders. Take this. The master broke off gazing at me and wafted a hand at the machine. It's a steel and flint mill, used by miners in the last century to provide light while they worked. The naked flame of a candle was too dangerous with the gases below ground. He opened the shallow drawer in the table and took out the lump of flint. Let me show you. Close those curtains. There are windows either end of the library. He walked briskly towards one and, bewildered, I hurried to pull the drapes opposite. The library was plunged into gloom. Now, come closer. We met in the middle, either side of the table. He picked up the mill and held it with one end pressed against his body. I could make out the handle on the wheel closest to him. He turned it, and immediately sparks flew up in the air, blasting the area between us with light. There was a frantic grating sound, and I saw that his other hand was holding the piece of flint against the turning disc. His face, lit up and floating behind the streaming sparks, made me think of a line from Paradise Lost that Mrs B read to us, with head uplift above the wave and eyes that sparkling blazed. He was grinning like a schoolboy, his lips and teeth strangely magnified in the burning light. I found my own face rigidly drawing itself up into a smile too, as if some bolt of energy had passed from him to me. He let out a shout of a laugh, and the mill whirred to a stop, which, after the bright light, cloaked us in almost total darkness. I blinked. The sudden blindness and silence made the hairs on my arm stand on end. Something moved in the dark, I thought, and I stumbled back towards the window, groping for the curtains. 
daylight rushed in. Very effective, you see. The master tossed the flint back into its drawer. But still not very safe. This particular flint mill caused an explosion that killed a miner. He placed it carefully, almost lovingly, back on the table. But the man operating the mill itself survived. Interesting, isn't it? I moved slowly back into the room as he continued. They say the sparks change colour as the methane levels rise. You would have seen what was coming for a brief moment. I expect it was rather beautiful. I looked at the thing. It was awful now, like the beautiful paintings of death and horror. But also, it was true. Interesting. Hi Hester, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, The Beholders. Hello, and thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. So can you start, Hester, by telling us what The Beholders is all about? Yes, so it's set in 1878 and it begins with the trial of a woman who is the wife of an MP and she's accused of murdering their baby son. But then the story flips back a few months and it's told completely through the diaries of a housemaid called Harriet Watkins. She goes to work for them at their estate in um, Hertfordshire. Um, and she is running away from her own difficult life choices, really. She's um, got the option of going home and marrying her childhood sweetheart, which is the most sensible thing for her to do, but she doesn't want to do it. Um, or an independent life, but a very hard life in domestic service. Uh, but she thinks she has a bigger purpose in life. And she thinks that she's found it uh, through working at this house, which is extraordinary, where even the other servants are all beautiful and through working with Clara Gethin, her mistress, who is captivating and seems to see something in Harriet that no one else does. Um, but she also realizes that something is wrong. It's not all quite as sparkly as it seems. And as she begins to understand what's actually going on in the hall, she starts to doubt her decision. And eventually she has to make another choice and really decide um, how far she's willing to go and what she's willing to wisp are willing to risk in order to do the right thing or what she thinks is the right thing. Mm. Yeah and I wondered whether you could give us kind of a bit of a background of where this novel began life and in fact when I started reading it I, I wondered whether it was there was some basis in a true story or I was just kind of intrigued as to where it all began. Um, it, it's not actually based on a particular true story at all there are there are several factors that came together um, but it has it has a very strange origin, really, because I didn't it's not the book I sat down to write whatsoever. That was going to be a tale in the present about a woman whose life had stalled. And I mean, she's also looking for meaning. So it's sort of similar themes. Um, but she sort of sets out on a quest to discover a mystery about an ancestor. So I was going to have her as the main story and then just dropped in little diary extracts which explains to the reader what was going on but she doesn't find the diary until the very end of the book um but I started writing the diary extracts first and that completely took over um and I started writing Harriet and her voice just eventually took off and I couldn't I couldn't get her to shut up <laughs> so it ended up, I ended up by accident writing a historical novel um and I think just doing research around that time um and you you inevitably you, you set a novel, especially with female protagonists in the 19th century, and you come slap bang up against uh, the problems they had, uh, the oppression and the abuse and the abuse of power over them um, and the lack of rights. And so that's so and just reading around that um, 
there was there were just so many instances but there wasn't one thing that I thought I would base it on uh my agent actually when she read it she said oh you must have based it on I can't remember the name of the man but there was a court case um which was sort of similar it had it had definite themes which I haven't understood hadn't known about it at all um but actually but actually it wasn't but I was kind of glad to have found out about that <laughs> like, yes validated <laughs> I'm intrigued then so you just kind of started writing these diary entries and Harriet appeared how did that kind of how did you go from that to this story did you just kind of keep writing in Harriet's voice and and find out the kind of the secrets through her how did it work I had the overarching um, backstory subplots in mind, um, possibly more than I'd had the actual what was going to be the main plot. Uh, so I knew which bits of that story I wanted to have diary entries for. But once I started writing it and, and once I realised that actually this was just too big a story, it was a novel all in itself, then I still did have that framework. But again, that changed because once I started writing Harriet. The original plan was to get her out of the house, get her out of Finton Hall really quite quickly. And then there was going to be this other um, story arc outside of the house. But I couldn't get her to leave because she just kept she kept finding out new things and being really interested in stuff. And um, I kept writing in my journal, you know, uh, around October time. I was like, I will have them. I will have them out of the house by November. I will have them out of the house by Christmas. And it just never happened. <laughs> until much much later in the book so then I was yeah it was kind of interesting for a lot of this book I had no idea what I was writing and I've not had that experience before it was quite unnerving but also quite exciting there's a great quote in your acknowledgments where you say um debut novels aren't always the same as first novels and this <laughs> book owes so much to its two predecessors um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Um, I'm assuming you've kind of written other novels before and they haven't maybe gone anywhere or you've struggled with them. How? Um, tell us about kind of your your background to getting to this point. Yeah, but the first two books, they were completely different. Uh, the first one was a, really a time travel story, but it did have its... Um, it was about a physicist who very randomly and without explanation... Uh, is sort of zapped forwards to the present from the late 19th century. So there was a lot of research into the 19th century then, and I've always been interested in the Victorian period. Uh, and then the second novel, that was an absolute, I just sort of ran at it. Um, I had no idea what I was doing, didn't really believe I could write a novel. Uh, <laughs> I was kind of astounded I ever finished it. Um, and then, but writing that made me realise that that was actually what I wanted to do and I just sort of pivoted my entire life around writing then. Um, and then the second novel, which I took much more seriously, thought, okay, I can do it. Maybe I do have a shot at this. Uh, that was a modern psychological thriller, really. Um, and that that got me my agent. And that was a very different experience writing that because I felt a bit more confident and I planned that one more um, and thought, okay, yeah, I'm really learning now how to do this, what you're supposed to do. Um, and that one did actually, did that did sell to an Italian publisher, um, but then they they shelved it, which was a thing I didn't realise happened, but apparently it's quite common. Um, the editor who bought it left and they had a shake up and my book just got shelved, but you don't get told that. Yeah. You do, I had to sort of say, um, nothing's happened for a long time. Well, you know, something, and yeah, it turned out that they'd, they just decided to drop it. 
um, which was really disappointing at the time, but actually worked out brilliantly because I still got paid some money, which really helped during lockdown um, because I'd sort of fallen through the cracks in terms of having an income. Um, and so really helped sort of fund the writing of this one. Um, and then this one can come out as a debut with all the sort of bells and whistles around that, which if the Italian one had been published, wouldn't have been able to. It's quite a, a, quite a change then from being from writing a kind of contemporary psychological thriller to then writing this historical fiction um, and kind of gothic fiction. But I, I get the sense that you almost feel it took you that time to find your way into the right voice and the right genre for you. And then now you feel like you've grasped it with the beholders. Is that, is that kind of what you think's happened? I'm not sure, actually, because I feel um, I feel like kind of wedded to those other books as to this one. Um, yeah, it's 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 strange because this is obviously the one that's taken off and is obviously just what we all do. We do our best. And we write what we want to write. And you just hope that's going to align mm. with the stars and with the publishing <laughs> marketplace and with the editor it lands in front of. You just don't know. And although, yes, it is a very different book and it's a very different genre, I the experience of writing it, I feel, is kind of the same. It's still the same process. You're still you're not treating your characters any differently. The difference is the research that needs to go into it and the extra work that needs to go into to feel your way into the life of a character and understanding, you know, just what the floor feels like when they get out of bed and, you know, what, <laughs> what they're eating and all those little details which you just have to know um, to bring it off the page. Um, that was the difference with it. It's just, just a shed load more. <laughs> reading around it which is which is really interesting and fun but sometimes I think oh to go back to contemporary <laughs> can you pinpoint maybe that you think there's something special about this book that grabbed the attention of um the editors that, that bought it is there something different about this book do you think um gosh that's a question um <laughs> I feel like you need to ask them that <laughs> maybe I should ask them that um, I think they really liked the voice of Harriet. I think that really worked. And I think I think gothic historical fiction is just a big thing. I don't know if it's always been, but I think certainly at the moment. Um, and I think there are, I mean, it is certainly set in its time, but there are parallels um, with the present and the issues that you know sort of explored in the book definitely resonate still. I think that's why the Victorian period is such a rich theme for writers and so often set there. Um, so I, yeah, I think I think I think those two things, the sort of voice and just where you're able to do what I was able to explore in it, I think perhaps mm. perhaps helped. And it's really. Because everyone loves Victorian fiction as well. I mean, a lot of people love reading books from the 19th, written in the 19th century. And so to write um, a sort of similar sort of thing, but writing now, you can obviously write about things which the Victorians couldn't write about or are unwilling to write about. Um, so that always adds another element of interest as well. Definitely. One thing that I wanted to speak to you about is the... Uh the kind of the use of your prologue which is this uh piece from the newspaper um mm. and I wondered whether you'd always thought of using a prologue to kind of um I guess I guess it's I've, I've got a prologue in my book and I, I guess it was a way of signposting that 
you know, something is going to happen later on that's going to be um, exciting or controversial or whatever it is. Um, did you always think of having a prologue or was that a, a later decision? Um, I think it was quite late in the writing my own draft, uh, first draft, um, quite a late decision then. I didn't realise how powerful it was going to be, but when I showed it to a friend who read it and as she was reading it, she said, oh, it's really, you just really want to know what happened because of what's in the prologue. And I thought, oh, <laughs> that made me realise, oh, that's actually quite a neat trick. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, tell us a little bit more about Harriet then. Um, obviously, we find her at the beginning with this dilemma of, you know, she's getting letters from her mother that are quite kind of guilt tripping and she's got, mm. a, she's got a sweetheart. Um, how did you, obviously, you had her voice that came to you straight away in this diary form. How did you then go about kind of building her as a, um, a fully rounded person with a with with kind of creating her personality? Um, I think I was very much led by the voice. There is that was a strange sort of weird spooky thing of feeling like characters are behaving by themselves. You just sort of turn up and <laughs> they they show you what's happening. Um, and I, I think that got more and more layered the more the more that happens and the more that she sees and just thinking about how she would respond to something. Um, and as things get more and more weird, um, moving away from things, I suppose, that where I was writing her, uh, things that I'm, I would be familiar with, like, you know, being bored of a relationship, not wanting to be in it or feeling very frustrated at work and feeling like you don't have any options and obviously I, my life isn't the same as the 19th century housemaids but there were parallels with that so you sort of start from yourself I think but using her voice and then and then that just layers and layers as as the plot starts to thicken and as more things happen um her character has to have an impact on that story um so I, I think it sort of happens organically that way of, of just figuring out what this character would do or not even figuring out, just letting her do it and then sort of saying, oh, okay, so this is this is who she is and this is how you can develop this part of her character. And yeah. So this book, kind of thing. I'm getting the sense this book wasn't as um, planned as maybe previous books had been. No, it was, well it, well, it was, but then it just went in a completely different direction. It was very <laughs> strange. I've never been pushed around by a story so much. <laughs> I just, yeah, I just couldn't get it to behave the way I wanted it to. So I had to keep going back and replotting and saying, okay, so so it is just the historical novel. And then it's okay, so they're just going to be in the house for a lot longer. The structure has to change. Um, and I have to either compress or do away with the other story I was thinking about. Um, so yeah, I did try to plan it, <laughs> but it wouldn't let me. Um, yeah, strange experience. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. What do you think then was the most challenging aspect of this book to write? Um, I think because I wasn't writing exactly what I had wanted to write I found that quite difficult because I didn't want although there is a big theme of power and the abuse of power in the book I'm not very interested in in villains um and you know like real life like real people villains um even well-rounded character villains yeah I'm just not that interested in why people who are in that position do what they do although obviously it can be very interesting and other people have dealt with that I just didn't particularly want to I wanted to look more at um, what the people do beneath that and how they're affected by it Um, so I found that you know this one character in particular that I hadn't really planned on making a central character and and then I had to um, and I found that really difficult he was quite one-dimensional to begin with because I just wasn't really interested mm. in him. <laughs> and, then, and I thought, well, I'm going to have to make him interesting to me. So I sort of, yeah, did more with his character. Um, but it was, I, I kind of resented having to do it. And although I'm quite pleased with the end result, it, it was a slightly strange, it was like the patriarchy infiltrated my novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you said, it's hard. I've spoken to a lot of historical fiction writers and it's that balance between telling a story that's appealing to kind of our contemporary sensibilities in terms of um, quite feminist novels or novels where women have agency, but also mm-hmm. working within the constraints of, um, you know, the patriarchy and and that, that kind of historical level of, well, historical lack of control that, that women have mm-hmm. in, that, in that era. Um, 
I just want to ask you a little bit more about your research because obviously you've done some research for the Victorian era before and you have an interest in that time. Um, was most of your research done before you started writing or did you kind of dip in and out while you were while you were writing the book? Um, I did an initial three months where I was really researching the servant experience because I didn't didn't have any real detail on that. Uh, so, yeah, doing a lot of reading, trying to get as many primary sources as possible. And then when I started writing, it, it inevitably continued because I was suddenly in a situation which I hadn't researched because the story takes you where it will. Um, and, and just things like the language, especially doing it first person um, in diary form, it feels like every other word I'm looking up the etymology and was it used then and is this idiom in place? And sometimes it was so frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't I can't have her stick her heels in oh. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so that so it, it continued and yeah all the way through and even afterwards I was still going back and checking stuff and trying to figure out a better example for something small and that kind of thing yeah it never stopped was there a point with the with the language that you just thought I you know I I'm, I'm giving up in the sense I'm, I'm kind of letting go of that responsibility that it has to be perfect um, no, I, I never felt that. Um, and there was one point in edits where my editor said, you know, I was really, I was really angsting over a word. And she was like, oh, don't worry, you know, we'll do that in the copy edit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what a lovely position to be in. I was yeah, so yeah. grateful for the line in copy edits. <laughs> um, but I did, I know I didn't lose that sense of responsibility. And I'm sure there are absolutely bound to be a hundred mistakes in there um, and more. But yeah, I'd also just because it, to make that as authentic as possible just feels like you're, you're saying as near as possible to the character that mm. you want to write. I did want to write something that did feel plausible. There's obviously a certain amount of artifice that goes into it. I mean, nobody writes a novel, a, a diary like Harriet does in my novels. No one, no one does that. Um, but I did, I did want to feel as much as possible like she could have been a, a 19th century girl. Mm. I think as well the diary form is is so um synonymous with gothic fiction um mm. so it works really well because you're and also you're giving us like a first person perspective and sometimes I think well this is another thing that we all agonize over how can you give a first person perspective is it going to be diary or letter are they just going to be talking to the reader you know all mm. those things that you have to consider but luckily for you your diary works in that kind of era really well I think mm, yeah I think it really did lend itself and I did think oh maybe maybe it doesn't have to be a diary when I knew I was doing the whole book um maybe it could be letters mm. um I could play around with it and I think if I'd known how difficult it was going to be actually to try and sustain an entire novel in diary form I might, I might have changed my mind about <laughs> it because it was really challenging mm. but I'm, I'm glad I stuck with it and did it because it is yeah it's so of the time mm, definitely I, I'd love to kind of step back in time a little bit and you mentioned earlier that there was a point where you were writing I think your second novel where you thought okay I can do this like this is possible um I wondered whether whether there was a point in your life where you thought you know I love writing I want to be a writer and now I'm going to take it seriously was there a point that you had that yeah definitely I think I put off writing um for a long time because I was an actress to begin with um and I'm wondering, I was talking to a friend about it the other day, if I just actually mistook 
something when I was nine and my mum took me to the theatre and we saw two shows, um, Shakespeare's, and I was absolutely blown away by it. Um, and I sort of absorbed somehow some of the lines and then was apparently repeating them for weeks afterwards. Uh, and I, I, I took from that, oh, I want to be on stage, I want to be an actor. But I wonder if actually... <laughs> So I love language. I want to write. It should have been what I thought. I mean, I don't. I don't regret doing the acting at all. It was brilliant. But um, I, I think I think that sort of delayed the writing because I said I went off to do a English literature degree. Um, so it's like you know the clues were there. It was yeah. all about the books. Um, but I think in a way, although I absolutely love that, I think writing a uh, reading such incredible authors in depth over a long time does make you a bit shy of writing yourself even if it's not a conscious thing I felt I sort of I thought oh I'd like to write but you know I don't have the stories coming to me I don't I can't write like this um I never really examined it very much um but it meant that I didn't didn't try and I thought and also I thought I want to be an actor Mm -hmm. um and so that was for my 20s and then as that was um sort of grinding to a halt it was the uh very familiar sorry story (laughs) of the aspiring actor um not much to write home about but you know good experience anyway um but it was it was then it was while that was I was actually thinking oh thinking the unthinkable I should I should maybe I should just stop acting um and then, and I'd had an idea for a story for ages. And then I ended up very uncharacteristically turning up to an airport five hours before I needed to be there. Don't know how I managed to do that. And there was no point going back into town. So I thought, oh, well, I'll start writing this story. And that, just that, doing that story, um, even that first day writing just lit something in me. And it made me realize that, yeah, this is what what I want to do and I went straight from that story it was supposed to be a short story but it was about 13,000 words in the end which isn't short not very good at the short form um I went straight from that into the first novel um so yeah it was definitely a kind of moment of of epiphany Mm -hmm. did you query with that first novel did you send it to agents or not yes I did um I sent it to one batch I think I knew deep down that it wasn't gonna fly and I I went to a Curtis Brown Discovery Day and you know for a moment it was all really exciting the agent was like oh send me the whole novel immediately this sounds amazing and then I got this really quite brutal email (laughs) saying it was you know unpublishable really um so that was a shock but I I was just already on that thing um I think I I don't know if I did try to rewrite them. I did go, I have gone back to that novel several times and I still stand by it. But <laughs> someday, someday, even if I just put it on the internet in a Word document, <laughs> I'm going to get it out there. Um, but yeah, I did. But I think I was much more, the second novel felt much more to me like, okay, this is ready. Um, and it still took a very long time to get an agent. I did it in batches and it took forever. Um, and Juliet was the very last agent on the last batch who had asked for the whole manuscript um yeah I mean, <laughs> it took a long long time and a lot of submissions but got there mm-hmm. yeah uh, kind of a long emotional process I can imagine as well mm-hmm. so we often talk about kind of the debut year and the kind of ups and downs of, of being a debut novelist and particularly I think when you sign the contract 
you've no idea what the next kind of 18 months are going to feel like because there are things that happen that are out of your control or there's things that you maybe think oh I'm not sure about that or I don't know what I'm doing um is there anything you wish you'd you'd known kind of when you before you signed your contract that would maybe help you deal better with all the ups and downs of being a debut um I'm not sure there isn't I mean I think I'd I'd like to have just been told more what to expect because I think you know publishing is obviously this machine that's going on and everyone in it forgets that someone coming into it has no idea what's happening so maybe just slightly more um preparation but uh, you know it's not like I had no preparation at all and I could always ask for more mm. um but but I think I think because it was my third book and I'd almost got to that point of I did actually have to sort of have a word with myself I'd be like well are you gonna if this book doesn't fly what are you going to do and the answer was just so clearly from experience well I'm just going to keep writing so I had to really look at the fact that maybe I'm just going to keep writing and not get published um and I'm just going to have to be okay with that because I want to write full stop mm. um so I, I think it it it's not that it's a bonus <laughs> but because I felt at peace with that everything that I don't feel is worried or stressed about what happens now um whereas I think if this had happened with either of the other two books I'd be much more stressed and anxious and worried about what's going on and am I doing everything I can and what's happening with the publisher and blah blah blah. I think that would have I think it would have been a much more sort of stressy experience Mm. um whereas I think I'm quite lucky in a way my younger self would look at me with utter disgust but um (laughs) the that I have, you know, this is happening in my mid-40s. Mm. Uh, so I just feel a bit more relaxed about it and a bit more able to enjoy it. So, yeah, I think if it was my younger self doing it, I would just be like, you know, just just relax, ask the questions but and enjoy it. This is, mm. you know, this is such a... We all know how much is down to luck and chance and, and all the rest of it. Um, don't don't stress yeah. would you <laughs> say as well comes. kind of just to put all the publishing stuff to one side and just concentrate on the writing of another yes. book or the next thing yeah exactly remember why you're doing it in the first place and I think for most people it is the writing um yeah I don't think many people can go into it just you know, with wanting fame and fortune um, <laughs> no, exactly. good luck to them if they do but what a thing to choose <laughs> So on that note, finally, Hester, I was wondering if you could give us a little tease about what you're writing at the moment. Oh, well, that's, um, it's still, I'm I'm stuck with the Gothic 19th century um, whole era, but that is, it's about a woman who is brought up in um, a spiritualist mediums household uh, who she believes is her mother. She doesn't know her. This woman won't actually tell her. Um, and she sort of made, she she sort of made, put to work to, as all the behind the scenes because this woman, she treats it as a business and a lot of it is fake, even though she claims to have real clairvoyance. Um, so my main character is sort of appalled by it all. And she's basically abused. It's a very abusive childhood. And she breaks out in the end and she manages to find a, um, a life working with and as, as much as she could as a woman, an archaeologist. And she thinks she's sort of broken free. And she's, you know, there's, there's that whole Victorian pull between sort of modern science and religion and, and folklore and all that sort of thing. Um, 
and but it turns out of course that she hasn't quite escaped it there's stuff going on at the dig she's working on where you know locals believe it's cursed and she finds out that her guardian or mother whatever she is um has gone missing but has left her a letter which seems to have a connection to the dig so she she's just she's off on another mystery <laughs> mm. oh well it sounds great and it sounds like you've done so much work in terms of plotting the story already so that sounds that sounds brilliant um Hester yeah. thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today thank you very much it's been really fun thanks that was Hester Musson talking about her historical novel The Beholders which is out on the 18th of January and available to pre-order now and if you'd like to support this podcast debut authors and independent bookshops you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.